Welcome to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Professor Paul Youngbin Kim. This podcast features conversations on the intersection of psychology, culture, and faith with renowned scholars in psychology and related fields. And now, here is Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim. Good to see you. Good to connect with you. How are you this morning? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for being here and being willing to do this. As I disclosed in the email, one motivation for doing this is I'm trying to make my scholarly work more public. And the people that I'm working with, one thing that they're really encouraging me to do is do these kinds of dialogues or conversations with scholars like yourself about teaching cross-cultural psychology or psychology in general and the integration of faith. So I thought you might be an amazing person to talk to. So that's why I reached out to you. Okay, yeah. let's do it. I'm going to read a brief bio to get us started. So I'm excited to be here with Dr. David Myers. David is a professor of psychology at Hope College, where he has taught for many years. David has 17 books published, uh, chapters in over 60 books, numerous journal articles, and also blogs at talkpsych.com. His latest book is titled, How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind, which I have my copy here, uh, really getting into it. Uh, it's a collection of essays connecting psychological science to everyday life. And one impressive fact among many that I saw on Wikipedia, according to the Open Syllabus Project, David is most frequently cited among authors on psychology syllabi. David also writes about the intersection of Christian faith and psychological science. And for more on David and his work, find him on Twitter at David G. Myers. And again, David, thank you for taking the time to dialogue with me. Thank you, Paul. I look forward to our conversation. My first couple of questions are about bringing psychology to the public. Well, you have achieved and continue to achieve this rare combination of being at the top of your game in making psychological sciences accessible to the public, but at the same time, your rigor as an academic is unquestioned. And my question to you is simply, how do you do it? Uh, for those of us in academic psychology who are really interested in following your model in making our materials more digestible to the public. Do you have any advice or thoughts for us? Just two thoughts. One, it wasn't a life goal of mine to be a communicator of psychological science to the public, but that has ended up being my primary vocation. And I got to it simply by doing research in social psychology that led to invitations to write. And I can tell you that story if you're interested. And so then when I got that invitation to write, then I prepared myself to write. And this is mm. something other academics could do who want to prepare themselves to communicate to the public by developing one's skills as a written communicator. And mm. so I did this in several ways. First, I read great books, great nonfiction, tried to emulate and understand what great writing is. Second, I read a number of different writing manuals, starting with Strunk and White's Elements of Style and working through about a half dozen others that really try to coach people on 
the elements of good writing. Right. And then I passed all my writing through a grammar checker to flag every instance of passive voice, which is sometimes effective and appropriate, but oftentimes is better expressed in an active voice format. And then the most unusual thing I did is I engaged a writing coach and mentor who happened to be a poet colleague, the Carnegie Professor of the Year for the state of Michigan, a great teacher of writing, to be my first line editor and to coach me on developing my own voice, on having an understanding of how cadence works, how to order words in a sentence for greatest impact, how to communicate playfully, how to mix examples with abstract concepts and so forth. And over 5,000 pages of manuscript, this person coached me and he was paid to do so, but it was a mutually satisfying thing. Bottom line, other people might do this differently, but I think many academics just assume that they are also writers and they're not, we're not trained in writing. And mm -hmm. so if you haven't been trained in writing, if you don't have a background in journalism, if you haven't taken an English major and taken courses in nonfiction writing, then maybe it would help you to really, with a spirit of humility, seek to develop your own writing communication skill and make that a professional focus. Wow. What strikes me in what you share, David, is the intentionality in seeking out extra training. As you noted, in graduate school, we don't typically get this kind of training where we are taught to write in a way that's digestible by the right. public. Mm -hmm. And I should say that in my case, it began with very low self-esteem. That is, I thought, I'm not very good at this. I haven't been trained in this. Other people are smarter and better at this than I am. So that if I'm going to be able to have a place in the world of communicating psychological science, mm -hmm. I have to put in more work and effort than other more naturally gifted people might. And so it was really, a, in a sense, out of a sense that I'm not really very good at this, or at least not as good as I could be. And I think that is true of everybody that I've made this a focus. And I'm not saying I'm the best now, but I have more skill than I did before I put this effort into developing the skill. I think you have amazing products that are out there and your writing is so accessible to college students and to people not in psychology. So I really admire how you develop that aspect. I'm curious also what you said about this idea that I'm going to go back to the attitude of humility, right? And the need to overcome our imposter syndrome and to really put in the work and admit that it's an area that we might want to grow in. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Because imposter syndrome is so strong among academics, especially right. in an area that we're unfamiliar with. It's true on the one hand that you and I are not the greatest. We're not even as good as we could be, but that's true of everybody else too. Right. <laughs> and so I think we should be humble about our own abilities and about the need to develop them. Mm. We don't have to be intimidated by other people, even other people who are more confident maybe than we are in themselves, because they too are fallible, imperfect human beings whose mm. abilities are not fully developed as yet. So I think 
if one's willing to invest effort, maybe even more effort than others are willing to invest, one at least has the potential to achieve some good things along right. with some, by the way, disappointments along the way, because there's going to be rejections. There's going to be lack of public interest. Some people just won't find interesting what you think is fascinating. That's been my experience. So there's a lot of disappointments and failures along the way and rejections. But amid those, keep pressing the bar. If the world has us on a partial reinforcement schedule, pellets will occasionally drop <laughs> and good things will happen. Yeah, that's really perceptive. Thank you, David. I have a follow-up question to making psychology more public through your writing, and that is, can you speak to how your Christian faith informs or motivates how you make your work public? How does your faith relate to that? One way it does connects to the conversation we've been having about humility. So if you're a believer, regardless of what your specific beliefs are, there's two things that you share with all theists. One, you believe there is a God. And number two, you believe it's not you and it's not me. And so the surest conviction I can have is that some of what I believe and know and understand is in error. There is a God, it's not me. And believing that, then that is the basis for opening my mind to learning, to growing, to worshiping God with my mind by trying to discern all the evidence that I can, mindful that I might be wrong. And so that theism-grounded spirit of humility is what helped give birth to science back in the 1600s, and it's what helps institutions like my own that are in the Reformed tradition, mm -hmm. where they believe in a Reformed and ever-reforming kind of faith, Right. To, to deeply respect science in that spirit of humility, worshiping God with our minds. And that's the basis. That's a motivation to do psychological science, for example. So faith doesn't just allow us to do good science. Mm -hmm. It mandates and encourages us to do rigorous science, to explore the creation unfettered by any prior assumptions and to sometimes let that change our mind. It's fascinating that we are talking about humility as it relates to uh, thinking about God and worshiping God right. and allowing our pursuit of psychology to be grounded in that worship. When I think about some of the barriers to Christian academics making their uh, work more accessible to the public, sometimes humility is used as an excuse to not do that, meaning that we feel like, oh, like we shouldn't be so outspoken about our work, right? That we should right. be humble and not share that. And so I think connecting humility to actually our motivation to make psychology more accessible because it is grounded in our faith, I think that's really important to think about. So certainly. And when we do have some insights, we're often inspired to tell the story. And so sometimes you read something or learn something and you have an urge to share it. My writing, my essay writing, for example, for my blog, TalkPsych.com, and in this new book that's a collection of essays, and even in my textbook writing, begins with my reading something and thinking, oh, this is so interesting, so fascinating, so humanly significant. 
the world should know about this. And that's that urge to tell the story. That's the impulse that feeds writing and communicating both through good teaching in the classroom and through teaching through writing. This takes us nicely to the next question, which is about faith integration in psychology. David, when I was an undergrad, if you can believe it, I used this book, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith. And I remember thinking that it really was freeing to think about how psychology doesn't have to be in competition with theology and my Christian faith. And in the book, you talk about levels of explanation as a useful framework in thinking about psychology's role in explaining God's people and in explaining God's world. I think it really helps in my mind to think about psychology and its legitimacy alongside theology, especially when people question that, right? When people around me ask about that. So I'm curious if you, in your own words, can provide a brief description of what you mean by levels of explanation and then maybe an example. Well, any phenomenon can be looked at from various levels of or perspectives, levels of analysis, you might call them levels of explanation from the atomic particle level to chemistry. I was a chemistry major, but you could know everything you could possibly about chemistry, and that doesn't necessarily explain the biology, the mm. macro system that a biological organism is. Right. And likewise, you can know all everything there is about the neuroscience of the brain, and there's still a legitimacy to cognitive psychology and to doing scientific experiments on how the mind works. And then above that, at a higher level, there's social relationships and social systems which are composed, which are dependent on the lower levels of explanation for their operation. So you ask for an example, an example might be a romantic love. A physiologist or neuroscientist might describe love as a state of arousal. A social psychologist might describe love and analyze it in terms of uh, social ingredients like attraction and similarity of partners and repeated exposure to other people that feed love. A poet could express it as a sublime experience, a theologian might look at it as a God-given goal of human relationships. The point is that every one of these levels of explanations has its own integrity and its own value. And you can't reduce the higher level explanations to the lower level explanations. The biochemistry of love is great. It's important, it's a valuable science but it doesn't capture what the poet is writing about. And so the levels of explanation view respects each level of explanation as its own view. They're not in competition. And that applies to a religious and a scientific perspective on human nature. They each have integrity. They each have value. One doesn't cancel the other out. They're not, they're not on opposite ends of a, a teeter-totter, so to speak. Thank you for that example. I also think it's consistent with this understanding of psychology as being primarily descriptive as opposed to being prescriptive. And certainly in my work, I try to draw out lessons from the descriptive findings, but I'm also very quick to point out to folks that there are some limitations to psychology in terms of being able to answer the question of way things ought to be. Absolutely just to take a controversial topic, 
I've learned a lot and had my understandings changed by the psychological science that helps me understand the nature of sexual orientation and what predisposes people to be attracted to their own sex or to the other sex. But the question of how we ought to live sexually and what kind of moral norms are conducive to human flourishing is a completely different question. I'm not saying that the two can't inform each other, but they're distinct questions. They're distinct levels of explanation. On that topic, David, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how to help students grapple with seeming contradictions across the levels of explanations? In other words, I would think that if we had perfect knowledge in a non-fallen world, that there would be no contradictions, but there inevitably are conflicts or seeming conflicts that we perceive, for example, between what theology might say and also what psychological sciences might say. I'm curious how you help students and for that matter, general public from Christian backgrounds grapple with those difficult questions. Sure. I start with the axiom that all truth is God's truth. And so whatever's true is true and it's God's truth. And if it challenges the way I've interpreted scripture or somebody else has interpreted scripture, then maybe I need to re look at my interpretation of scripture. Or maybe the science is provisional and because scientific understandings change over time. And when there's tension, I'm not upset by that. I'm not conflicted by that. It doesn't destroy my faith if something I used to believe doesn't seem to be true anymore. Because it goes back to that idea, I'm not God anyway. I'm not threatened by new understandings. I do think that part of our challenge is to worship God with our minds. That's our disciplined minds. And science at its best is part of that process of worshiping God with our minds as we try to explore the creation and accept its truth and listen to it. And so, you know, and in many ways, these different levels of explanation and we'll talk about this later probably, are harmonious, are deeply harmonious, but there can be conflict too. And I mentioned, I didn't intend to intrude this into our conversation, but sexual orientation would be a topic where understanding, having come to understand sexual orientation as a natural enduring disposition, and also understanding that people are made with a deep need to belong, and they tend to flourish in connected partnerships close relationships over time. Those two like bodies of scientific insight, they inform my thinking about controversial issues that the church is wrestling with. Thank you. I have a sense of this from what we've talked about already, but faith integration is something that comes up often in Christian higher education. And it's something that we hold as really important as a community value that a Christian faith learning communities that we really are intentional about integrating faith into the classroom. But I also find that sometimes we don't have a clear agreed upon definition of what that is. How would you understand or define faith integration? Is that something that you like or you don't like as an idea? So there's various ways to do kind of psychology, faith integration. And if you're a clinician, that's going to mean one thing. For me, as a social psychologist and communicator, it yeah. means something different. So it's meant, I would say, three things principally. One is thinking about and writing about 
how psychological science perspective on human nature connects with biblical and theological understandings of human nature. So from neuroscience, cognitive psychology, social psychology, and so forth, we have certain insights into human nature. And biblical and theological wisdom has certain understandings of human nature. How do those things, how do those things connect? And just to give you a couple examples, psychological science documents both the importance of a healthy, positive self-esteem, but also the perils of what we call self-serving bias of thinking too highly of oneself or one's group. This parallels, if you stop to think about it, the idea of the importance of grace for kind of healthy self-acceptance. And on the other hand, the perils of the deadliest, the foundational of the seven deadly sins, pride, mm. which goes before a fall. And so here's an example of where two bodies of understanding, two different language systems are really saying very much the same thing. Or take from a social psychological perspective, the relationship between attitudes and behavior. Attitudes influence behavior, but then our behaviors also influence our attitudes. And there's a kind of reciprocal relationship. And all of a sudden a light bulb went off one day when I was hearing a colleague talk theologically about the reciprocal relationship between faith and action. So faith informs and guides action. A Damascus Road experience can you know, change one's whole life thereafter. But at the same time, as Bonhoeffer argued in The Cost of Discipleship, how to grow faith is through obedient action. Mm. Living the life of faith feeds faith. Well, I thought, whoa, that's just saying exactly what social psychologists have found abundant evidence of, but right. with a different language system. So those would be two examples of trying to connect big ideas in psychological science and in theology and biblical scholarship. And then also, I would say the other two things that I've certainly tried to do is explain to people of faith the values, the value and the insights of psychological science and how it can inform their own self-understanding and their own communal life as a community of faith. And then on the other hand, for social science to document some interesting links between religious engagement and personal well-being and physical health. And so the dialogue kind of goes both ways. I think psychological science has something to offer to people of faith. And I think research on the benefits of religious engagement needs to be more fully appreciated by social scientists. So those would just be some examples from my life of how I integrate faith and my psychological science. That's great. For me, I disclose to you that I'm working on a book on integrating faith into cross-cultural psychology. It was actually inspired by your psychology through the eyes of faith work, where I would think of that book as a form of supplement to introduction to psychology textbook or gen psych textbook. For me, I want my work to be supplement to a typical mm -hmm. cross-cultural psychology book. As I'm thinking about the materials for this book, like you, I find myself thinking a lot about how cross-cultural research complements or confirms or really strengthens some of the biblical understandings of human nature. For example, the importance of respect for authority, the importance of filial piety, right? And how culturally, especially in a vertically collectivistic context, that's so important. 
and there are benefits to that socially and also for one's mental health. And the Bible really speaks to also the importance of respecting our elders, but also the perils of that as well, that research shows if taken to a distorted way as well. So I guess all that to ask for your insights on when you write a book like that, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith, where you're speaking to psychology, but from a faith perspective, what are some challenges and some rewards that you can share with me and others who are wanting to do this kind of similar work? Our challenge in writing that book, Psychology Through the Eyes of Faith, was we were given the assignment of writing a book that would supplement an introductory psychology course. So mm. we then had to think about all the topics from biological psychology to developmental psychology to mm. cognition and memory and learning and to psychological disorders on the social psychology. And so yeah. I had to think about how does all this science inform faith mm. and how can our faith inform our reflecting on and processing this science? Yeah. So starting with the biology of behavior, my mm. co-author Malcolm Jeeves, who yeah. turns 96 next fall and whom yeah. I'll see in St. Andrews in a couple of weeks, happened to be a world-class cognitive neuroscientist. So he took the lead in helping us craft that. And we were able to think about what is the biblical understanding of human nature? Is it is our true nature immortal souls who are occupying a body? That mm. turns out to be, from his perspective and my perspective and that of many, many biblical scholars, a platonic notion that's foreign to the actual biblical understanding. And so we tried to articulate an understanding of whole persons, which really is deeply congenial with the idea of psychological science, that we are embodied creatures. Mm -hmm. That was the kind of the first big idea in the book. And then moving on to talk about developmental psychology, we talked about kind of development of spiritual cognition over time, or thinking about memory, I asked, how could communicators, how could preachers, for example, apply memory science to create memorable persuasive messages? And so that was applying psychology in the life of the church. And so and what we did is just think of different ways we could connect our field to our faith. And then we wanted to boil it down into digestible little short chapters that could be read as a supplement. So it's just an extra 15, 20 minute reading on top of what you're reading for that chapter. Right. And then to put it in a voice that would be acceptable to and digestible by first year college and university students. Mm -hmm. So think of it this way, Paul, yeah. your task in writing this book and my task is, as one of my former colleagues said, to take the bread that's baking up in the ivory tower and bring it down to the street where people can eat it. That's beautiful so, yeah. way to put it. Was it helpful though that you had already written the general book, that you had good knowledge of the content that was in a really popular psychology correct. textbook? Correct, correct. So that was extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. So I had all that background Right. And I had done writing about psychology and faith, so mm -hmm. I had a lot to draw on. And Malcolm Jeeves had written several books about psychology and faith, mm. or science and faith. Right. So he had all his lifetime of knowledge to draw upon. So in mm -hmm. a sense, we had a running start on that project. I appreciate that perspective. One time I heard someone say that writing for a public audience requires 
even more empathy for your audience, right? Like keeping in mind, like what does a typical 18-year-old want to understand about psychology? Right. We have to understand the diversity of our audience too. And so there's liberal Democrats and mega Republicans. Mm. There's people from different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. In my case, there's people in different countries mm. over the world reading right. the book in different languages. And I could talk about soccer football in a perception chapter as mm. an example, but I wouldn't talk about baseball because that's American and my readers aren't all American. And so... Yeah, there's just so many people, so many things to consider. And that's part of the editorial process, too, is to check and ask ourselves, how is this going to play with different people? And to be respectful of diverse views. If I write an essay, like an op-ed essay or something like that, I'm free to mm. express my own opinion. Right. But if I'm talking about, let's say, sexual orientation, it's my job to report on the science to inform your thinking. But there's going to be different views out there. And what you do with that information is that's up to the reader. On that topic, how do you intentionally integrate themes related to diversity, equity, and inclusion or cross-cultural or multicultural topics into a book that's already full of content? So like Introduction right. to Psychology, for example. And yeah, those themes great. have to be updated on a regular basis. What is your approach in doing that? Great question. First, mm -hmm. for my introductory text, the publisher, Macmillan, mm -hmm. is as committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion as any publisher in existence, I think. They have a passion for this. And so they and my editors put everything through a DEI screen. So we do a census of all the people represented in the photos. For example, yeah. even the cartoons now pass through this. Uh -huh. I've loved New Yorker cartoons, mm -hmm. but they tend to be old white men historically. <laughs> and so we've actually gotten New Yorker cartoonists to redraw some of their cartoons. They have the same humor, but they represent to allow everybody who's reading the book to find yeah. themselves and see themselves visually in the book. So, second, that affects our content too. So when it comes to you're interested in cultural psychology, yeah. and my perspective is that my challenge is to report not just on American psychology for American students, but on the world of psychology for a worldwide right. student audience. I am American. I am in this context. And most of our readers are in the United States, or at least in the United States and Canada. But I'm an affiliate member of the British Psychological Society, so I'm looking at Asian journals, table of contents, and European journals, and so forth. And of course, many worldwide people publish in the journals like of the APA and the Association for Psychological Science. But I would just say I, I do an inadequate job of this, but our mandate and our mission and our effort is to report on psychology globally and to have global cross-cultural examples. And we do that partly because our audience is global, mm -hmm. but partly also because North American students and American students in particular should be aware of the world and not right. just of their own country. And so there's been some effort to like Canadianize books. So you take the, you, you have a Canadian adaptation with Canadian content. Right. Or we, you do that for Australian readers. You have an Australianized textbook. And this has actually been done. 
or in Britain, my social psych book has a social psychologist there who's adapted the book with more British content. Well, that happens, and I understand that, but I resist that. I say, should American students have an red, white, and blue American book with American content and focused on America? No, I don't think so. I think they should have a globally focused, world-based book that exposes them to things beyond their own country. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's my goal. But I am American. I can't escape that. When I taught Gen Psych many years ago, I would rely on some activities from the manual that you had. And one of the activities on, I think it was in the developmental chapter, was on sleeping arrangements, right? And presenting to students, like, what would you do if this was your dilemma? Would you have a way to problem solve? And basically pointing out some of the cultural norms around sleeping arrangements and how in America, we typically value our space, we value autonomy, we value parents not sleeping in the same bed as the children, right? Whereas in other parts of the world, boundaries that are more fluid, right? I also liked your point about flipping through the textbook and having a systematic way to identify the representations in the pictures because representation is important. It's a good start. It's not the only thing, but it's an important start. And I think especially the history chapter of Introduction to Psychology tends to be dominated by European and European-American men. That's a tough Mm -hmm. one because that is the early history of psychology. Right. But Mm -hmm. if you look at our timeline now in the Mm -hmm. current edition of the book, which is done by a person of color, a Hispanic Mm -hmm. woman down in Texas, that we're very carefully trying to integrate people of color into the historical timeline of psychology. That's great. And I think APA has some resources around that as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this really fascinating stuff. So thank you. I just have a couple of questions that I am directing to all interviewees. What advice might you have for Christian psychology faculty who are beginning their careers in Christian higher ed? I would say one thing is to focus on becoming excellent in whatever is one's field. So if you're going to be a biologist, to the extent that time allows, be a great biologist. Mm. Really focus on getting to know your field, becoming an expert in your particular research area and making a contribution to that. And then at a later stage of one's mm-hmm. career, you may have opportunities. At least this is what happened to me. I didn't start out to, to become a communicator of psychological science. I didn't set out to write and think about the intersection of psychological science and faith. Those opportunities came to me later once I had credibility established in my field. And so maybe the place to begin is by pursuing excellence in one's mm-hmm. discipline. And then other opportunities will follow. And as you mature, mm-hmm. then you have opportunity to think more deeply about the connections between one's field and big ideas in other realms. I like that. Because in grad school, we're not typically taught about these kinds of integration approaches or to think deeply from a faith-related perspective about our discipline. So being able to excel in one's field and then also find opportunities for growing in that area of integration, I think is a really good advice. Right. Um, Now, I will say mm -hmm. when new faculty come to Hope, 
yeah. or to Whitworth. They are offered seminars and workshops on faith because they haven't gotten that experience in college. And you may want to integrate that into your teaching. So that's all well and good. I'm not yeah. saying don't think about these things right from the get go, but maybe at the beginning, focus on your own research and your own professional development in your field and develop a reputation and a credibility within your field. And that can be a platform for other good things happening later. SPU also offers that kind of a seminar. And I was right. surprised because I went to Calvin and I thought, oh yeah, I know what Christian higher ed is about, but totally different perspective right. when looking at it from a faculty standpoint mm -hmm. versus what I experienced as a student. Yeah. Right. And then my final question, David, is if you could ask my next guest any question about psychology, what might you ask? I think I might ask them this, Paul, and that is, how has psychology or how has psychological science and being in the field changed your mind? What do you think differently about today as a result of what you've learned or about research that's been done? How has it informed you? How has it changed you? What do you believe today that you didn't believe 20 years ago? Or what do you no longer believe that you once did? Yeah, hmm. I feel like that's a very important question that you have been asking as well, David. Sure. So what I think about sexual orientation today is what I is different than what I thought when I entered the field or what I think about the influence of genes versus parental nurture on the development of children's traits and cognitive abilities is maybe different today because of the, it's been informed by the research and list other things as well. Yes. Yeah. But in many other ways, the sciences deeply confirm things I've long believed. So mm. both things happen. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much again, David. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim. We hope this content was meaningful. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, let us know what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. We hope you will join us next time.